Welcome to part four of Uncommon Sense. And in case uh, you haven't been with us in the past few weeks, I thought it'd be helpful just to give a quick sort of summary of why we're doing this series. So there's a lot of things about God that uh, either you think or you know from the Bible that seem to make perfect sense and seem to be logical. And then there are other times when it comes to God's plan, when it comes to his activity in our lives, when it comes to the activity in the world, that we're like, this doesn't make sense at all. I don't get what God is up to. There are certain things about God that are not common sense, and so for that reason, are uncommon sense. Now, the the best thing we can do when it comes to those uncommon sense things, is to try to understand them better. And that's the whole idea behind this series. And in fact, if, if someone asked me, what's the best way to learn a little bit more about God? I can't think of a better thing, first of all, to turn to the Bible, but secondly, to listen to what Jesus, because he's God's son, what Jesus has to say about God is obviously he would know God better than anybody. And that's really what we're doing for five weeks. We're looking at conversations that Jesus had with people who misunderstood God to help them better understand who God is. So let's get into the, the content of week four. This, um, <clears throat> this past winter, um, I had the, the privilege of coaching my son's fifth grade basketball team. And it was supposed to be fifth and sixth graders, but we didn't have any sixth graders. So it happened to be fourth and fifth graders playing against fifth and sixth graders. So from the very beginning, I knew I had my work cut out for me in some ways, as a lot of these kids had never played organized basketball. And so what does unorganized basketball look like? Well, just watch little boys playing basketball at recess, okay? And here's in a synopsis what it looks like. If Jason's got the ball, he huddles over it while everyone else gathers around. And if they're, I'm on Jason's team, I kind of hop a little, Jason, Jason, I'm open, Jason. And if Jason can get me the ball, this is what this, I don't know if you ever watched little boys play basketball, They dribble, try to get to the hoop if they can get outside the scrum. If not, then they huddle over the ball, look around, and everyone else starts yelling, Ben, Ben. And they, so I'm like, you know what? That's not going to work on my team, okay? We got to get some structure going here. And so I spent a lot of time before the season started thinking about how can I put together an offense that is going to be understandable but structured? And here's what I came up with with three rules. All right. Let's go to the coach's clipboard for a second, okay? So we got to keep people spread, so there's going to be five spots around the perimeter, okay? These are the five spots we should be in, and if all else fails, if you're not sure what you're supposed to do, I use these in practice, you need to fill all five spots. If all five guys over here, that's bad. we got to fill all five spots. That's the first rule. Tracking with me? All right. Second rule. It's a double one. When you pass the ball to the teammate, this one rhymes, go to the hoop and make a loop, okay? So if you pass it to number two, you got to cut to the hoop, look to see if you're open, and then make a loop because they're filling all five. This is kind of, I'm a good coach, huh? You'll see in a second I wasn't. So that was number two, number two rule. The third one, in a rut, 
If you're in a rut and your teammate can't get you the ball, instead of running to the ball, back cut, because you'll probably be open for a back door, okay? You know, you know more about basketball than you wanted to know today, right? So those are the three rules. And I'm like, man, I am a great coach. John Wooden has nothing on me. I've taken this complicated thing and made it simple. Three rules. Just follow the rules. I coached our team in the first half of our first game to scoring zero points. At the end of the first game, five points, whole game. Now, there is various reasons for that, and I don't think it was all coaching. But one of the coaching things I did notice that I needed to work on was that the boys knew the rules so well, but they forgot the main point. What's the main point in basketball? Having fun. No. <laughs> it is not. They got to learn that. I got to come up with a rhyme for that one. The main point is to score a basket, okay? That's at least in my economics, but that was good. I got to come to your sermon. Um, and, and so they were so concerned about filling all five that if their man wasn't on them and they had a clear lane to the hoop, they wouldn't dribble it because they were thinking of the rules and forgot the main point, forgive me, to score baskets. And so I'm like, okay, we got we to gotta make sure that the main point is ingrained and then the rules supplement that. Now, how does this all have to do with God and religion and, and your relationship with God? Well, here's the thing. When, when the place of rules becomes elevated to where it shouldn't be, there's going to be problems and everything gets off kilter. And every religion has rules. I'm a Christian, but, and Christians have rules. But every faith system, every God system in the world ever created has rules. And most of the God systems out there, the rules are meant to get you into a relationship with him. And so if that's the case, that whole religion becomes all about the rules, all about the rules, all about the rules, 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 rules. But here's what I want to open your mind to when it comes to Christianity and also to help differentiate it as to what place rules play our first fill-in for today. In our relationship with God as a Christian, some of you are wondering what it means to be a Christian. Well, you'll see a little bit better after today. In our relationship with God, rules are part of it, but they're not the heart of it. Rules are a part of it. But if you remember in a rut back cut and forget that you need to score a basket, you've missed the heart of it. And so rules are not the heart of it. And, and here's the thing that I, I hope you see today, that there is this, this delicate and important balance for a Christian. Now, we're going to talk about this. Between not stressing about rules, but not forgetting about them altogether. Because if, if you stress about rules, all of a sudden you are stripped of the peace and the joy and the confidence you can have. We're going to talk about that. But if you forget about them altogether, <laughs> then we're falling into a different problem in our relationship with God that he doesn't intend for us either. 
So the thing is that Jesus continually was coming into, I guess, contact with with a group of people that really had this all wrong. They were all about the three rules, or for them it was many more than that, and had forgotten the main thing. And, and this group of ultra-religious people in the New Testament, was named, they were called the Pharisees. And, and really their whole faith system about God and how to be in a good relationship with him could have been categorized all about rules, 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 and I need to follow them in order to get into a good relationship with him. And so then you got Jesus coming onto the scene, and it's as if he's minimizing the rules. And it's as if he doesn't care about the rules in some ways, although they were off, because that's not the reality, but that's what they perceived in Jesus. And so they call him on it, and Jesus takes the opportunity there to explain the main idea behind God's rules. Luke chapter 6, we begin with verse 1. So one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. They were hungry. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you and your disciples doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? And for some of you, I lost you on one Sabbath, okay? So let me explain what's going on here, just in case it's needed. So the Sabbath day was always the seventh day of the week. And from way back from the time of Moses, God said the seventh day of the week, Saturday, is going to be a day in which you worship me in a special way by gathering together, and that you rest. It's a day of physical, emotional, and spiritual rest and recharging. And so the, the, the Pharisees understood this rule, this, this Sabbath rule, but what they had done is they had kind of upped the ante a little bit, because if you're all about rules, you're going to make sure the rules are really clear. And so they came up with a whole bunch of other things to help explain the Sabbath, like here's how many steps you can walk and shouldn't walk on the Sabbath day, or here's what constitutes work and here's what doesn't constitute work. And they had a real problem with what Jesus was allowing the disciples to do on the Sabbath day. Now, two things. One, the disciples actually weren't disobeying Sabbath law. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25, actually has an example of it's okay if you go into your neighbor's grain field and pick grain and eat it if you're hungry, okay? So he, he, could, have, he could have answered their complaints with, I got a passage for you. <laughs> and that's an okay way to answer someone who's uh, feeling in conflict with you. It's always good to defend it with Scripture. But it's interesting, that's not what Jesus does. He didn't just simply pull out Deuteronomy chapter 23 because there was a bigger teaching moment here that he needed to share with the Pharisees. And so instead, as he gets to the heart of it, here's what he says. Verse 3. Jesus answered them, Have you ever read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? Um, David is an Old Testament figure. Uh, he was king of Israel for a while. Before he was king, he was um, chased by King Saul, who wanted him dead. And there was this time in uh, 1 Samuel when no one around him wanted to, to help David because they felt like if they helped David, that then Saul would be after them as well. And David and his men were really hungry in need of food and a place to rest. 
No one would help him. And so they went to the, the tabernacle, which is kind of the Old Testament temple, or the, the temple before there was a temple. And he entered the house of God, and he took the consecrated bread, and he ate what is lawful only for a priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The consecrated bread. Like, this is, this is just really weird, okay? So, let me explain. In the temple and in the tabernacle before that, there were 12 loaves of bread. Special bread the priests made. Only the priests were able to eat it. The reason it was in there was to represent, first of all, the bread did, um, the people of God. And by being in the temple, it was sort of a symbol that God is okay to eat with his people, that God wants to have an audience with his people, that God loves his people. The idea was to symbolize the love of God. David comes to the tabernacle. He actually needs the love of God. Not a symbol of the love of God, but he actually needs food. And the priest there that day said, it's okay to eat it. Because what prevails? Not the rules. But while rules are a part of it, it's God's love that's at the heart of it. And so while in normal cases, it wasn't okay to eat the bread in this case, Jesus is reminding the Pharisees, remember? Remember how it was okay? Because God's love is bigger than his rules. It starts with God's love, and his rules follow it. Um, when, when Mark recorded this same event, he added a phrase that Luke doesn't share. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, let, let's think about how God feels about rules and feels about people. This, this verse is very telling. He said it, it's not that man was created to sort of fill out and to fulfill all the rules that God made. It's not like God started with the rules and he's like, you know what, I need some people to carry out my rules because I love my rules so much. Instead, Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man. God started with humanity, and he loved them. And then he's like, how can I continue to show my love for them? I'm going to give them some direction. Now, think about the Sabbath again. Think about what a blessing it was supposed to be. Think about how God intended it to be this day where people were forced to rest to not be stressed out by all the other things, to, to take a breath. And oh, by the way, while the Sabbath day uh, in the New Testament is no longer in effect, um, I will say, Americans, that it's still good to take time to rest, that God still created us the same way for this need to rest emotionally, spiritually, physically, what the Pharisees had done? They had manipulated, they had distorted God's law by forgetting God's love. And what it became of it, it be, the Sabbath became this anchor around people's neck. The law was an anchor, like, oh, 
I got to fulfill all this stuff and I've got to count my steps. And it, it, it lost track of the love of the reason that God gave it in the first place. You see, relationship precedes rules in the economy of God. It's not the other way around, where rules are the way that we get into relationship. But instead, it starts with relationship, and then he gives us his rules. If, if you want more proof of this, I think the best, one of the best places to turn is when God gave the summary to his law. Uh, we know it as the Ten Commandments. And before he gave the world or his people his ten commands, his ten commandments that summarize all of the law, look at, look at how he started out. He said, God spoke all these words and said, this is before you shall have no other gods, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now, I highlighted the word your because, again, this is before the commands were given, and yet what is God claiming? These people are already mine. They're not going to become mine by following the rules. They already are mine, and now I give them direction and rules. It's the difference between um, I am the Lord, the God, and I am the Lord, your God. Again, I'm going to say it again. Relationship in the economy of Christianity precedes the directions and the rules. And you, you and I, to, to view things correctly, always need to view what God has directed through the lens of what he's already done. Here's our, here's our next uh, fill-in-the-blank. Relationship with God happens not because of what I do and the rules that I follow, but instead because of what he has done. I'm sure maybe some of the Israelites, when they were being given the Ten Commandments, were like, really? He's already our God? I haven't done anything. And God's like, that's exactly the point. In fact, I've seen what you've done. It's not a lot of good. And he looks at our lives and he probably says, at least mine, I can't speak for you, and, probably, and says the exact same thing. Ben, I, I see what you do. You talk a big game, but your actions don't necessarily always follow as big. I see how, how you at times will create a story in your mind to help you feel better about what you're doing. I see how you excuse the things that you do or think or say and say, ah, it's really their fault. If they wouldn't have, I wouldn't. I see how you use the relationship I want with you, Ben, and sometimes you use that as kind of an excuse. I'll sit now because I know you love me. You'll forgive me later. And God saw that and what I couldn't do, and what I unfortunately do that's not good. And he said, I'm going to do something for you. And he sent his son. And that, the cross, is where your relationship with God was established. And, and if ever we get into this mindset of, you know, I gotta, I gotta, in order for him to, we've manipulated the rules. 
If you think your week's going to be better, like physically or in an earthly way because you're here on, at church this week, God doesn't work that way. Or in the reverse side, I mean, he, it might be better because he fills you with his word. That's true. Or the reverse is, sometimes we think, okay, if I don't go to church, then my week's going to be horrible. Or that we kind of jump in and out of God's grace depending on how good of a day we had in following his rules. His rules are important. We're going to talk about why in just a second. But it does, it's not because of relationship with him. You don't jump in and out of relationship with him on a daily basis. The only way you're out, <laughs> I'm out, is if I reject Christ. Otherwise, you're in because of what he has done. And, and it's cool because as, as Jesus ends uh, again with that statement in uh, Luke chapter 6, he, he says, um, I am the Lord. Is there a slide there, Linz? I am the Lord of the Sabbath, he says. You know what part of that is saying, what he's saying is? I'm the Lord in whom you can have rest. Have you ever just needed some rest? Rest from the incessant thinking about whether I'm good enough, whether it be for God or for anybody else. And in Jesus Christ, he looks at you and says, you are good enough because of my son. And he doesn't look past our sin because they're unimportant. He looks, he looks past our sin because he sees Jesus Christ. And then he gives us rest each day as we find peace in him. On our last day in this earth, we can leave this life at rest knowing that without a shadow of a doubt, heaven is ours because of the relationship he has given to us. <laughs> Rules are a part of it, but guys, they're, they're not the heart of it. And, and whenever your life or this ministry would ever be mostly about the rules, we have so distorted the relationship that comes first. But as we close, I do want you to understand that God's direction and our living according to it does matter. Our next fill-in says this. God doesn't give us rules to earn his love, but because he already does. It almost sounds like the rules are a blessing. Like, really? Like, life would seem to be so much easier if I didn't have to think about what God says. How, how is this because of his love? Now, when I was a kid, my pastor who also happened to be my dad, described the blessing of the law this way. It works as a curb, a mirror, and a guide. Did anyone else have a pastor that said the same thing? Okay, some of us did. Yeah, a curb, mirror, and guide. I'm like, what, Dad? Can you put this in my language, okay? And so I'm going to share with you two blessings of the law or his rules that maybe you haven't thought about before. I need to do them with stories, Okay. So about a month ago, I was supposed to go and visit um, one of our members, have a devotion with them, and give them communion. And I was trying to multitask. I picked up a sub from Subway, and I was going to eat and drive at the same time. And whenever you, you get a sub from Subway, it always has to have um, Southwest Chipotle sauce on it. 
And if not, it's not a good sandwich. So just remember that. That's a little bonus information for you. So mine had the orange Chipotle Southwest sauce on it. And so I'm, I'm eating my sub. I get, to the, I get to the place, and I'm about to go in. But before I do, for whatever reason, it's not vanity. I just looked in the mirror, okay? I'm glad I did because I had on my face what my grandma used to call some schmutz. Okay, so there's this big glob of orange Southwest Chipotle sauce on the side of my mouth. And have you ever had a pastor give you communion with schmutz on his face? I mean, that would be very disconcerting. And probably she was going to be too nice to tell me I had it on my face. So the mirror helped, didn't it? I got schmutz on my face. I got to clean it off, right? God gave us the law. His what his perfect standard looks like, because he knows that sometimes we might think too highly of ourselves, and we need to recognize we got schmutz on our souls, okay? That here is his perfect standard. And I don't daily live up to it. And it doesn't need to crush me, but it does need to remind me I need a savior. I might be good, on a good day, but I'm not good enough. God's rules point us back eventually to this need of Jesus that we need every single day. Second thing that God's direction does. Last week, I was driving in our neighborhood. Tons of kids in our neighborhood, lots of little kids, so you, you should always, if you ever come visit us, drive slowly. You never know what's going to happen. And sure enough, I'm driving, and a probably five-year-old runs out in front of the car, doesn't look at all. Thankfully, I was looking, so it wasn't really close, but his mom, as I kind of saw her out of the corner of my eye, had first, like, fear, and then frustration and disappointment with her five-year-old. It was as if she was giving that mom look of, We've talked about this a thousand times, and you're not listening. It's not good to run out in front in the street without looking both ways, okay? The five-year-old didn't get it. He just wanted to do what he wanted to do. His mom loved him, so he taught her to look both ways. She knew better. When we compare what God's direction is to what society says or what we want to do, we think that God just wants to ruin our fun and not allow us to run out in the road. God gave us his rules, his direction, because he knows exactly what's best for us when it comes to our finances, when it comes to our sexuality, when it comes to relationships, when it comes to, to how to act at work, when it comes to everything. God knows best. He gave us his direction not as a burden, but as a blessing to direct us. So how do we wrap all this together? What's a takeaway? I gave you information. Now what's the takeaway? When I was uh, in high school, uh, my senior year, we had a brand new uh, assistant football coach. First year there, probably his first day on the job was uh, fall camp for football. And for some reason, the head coach had put him in charge of sort of creating some new traditions amongst the, the team. And so he was kind of a rah-rah guy, kind of like P.J. Fleck, 
but with no you know, background to sort of uh, support all of his rah-rahness, okay? Um, and so first day of practice, he's telling us, okay, when I do this, you hit your helmets, and you yell this, and I'll chant that, and then you come back with this response, and you know, we're, my group of friends, we're all seniors, and we're very mature and very smart, and we know what's best for this team, and quite frankly, we're just not going to do it. And so by the end of the, at the end of the first day, we talked to uh, our head coach, and we're like, yeah, I don't think we're going to do this. And for whatever reason, he was okay with that, and we never did it again. Never did it again. About five years later, I came back to my high school because my brother was a senior and on the football team. And uh, they come out for the game, and they're doing all this helmet slapping and back and forth with the same exact assistant coach. And I'm thinking, wow, how did he get them to do that? Are they just better students and kids and more respectful than us? I'm like, no, it's my brother. I know that's not true. Um, so what was the difference? And I know what the difference was. When it came to the newest, the assistant coach, for us, he was new. We had been in the program for three years. This was our fourth year. We, we had no relationship with him, with my brother. He was there from the ground level. They had gone to school together, class together. They understood him. He understood them. But you know what was there first? Was relationship. Too often, guys, when it comes to God and his direction, we, we think about it as this, this burden that um, we're needing to sort of prove ourselves to God every day or you know, just that he you know, wants to maybe in some ways take away our fun. But the truth is, here's how I want to view you to view your life. Here's how Jesus, what he wanted the Pharisees to really understand, our last fill-in, your life is merely an opportunity to respond. You don't maybe like everything God directs you with. It's okay. What has he done for you? Well, he created an opportunity for a relationship. Now, the question is, how do I respond to that? How do I say thank you? God says, here's a way. And that's the proper place of the rules. Rules are a part of it, but God's love is at the heart of it. And may our lives, guys, be a thank you card that we're writing to him as we listen and follow. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you today. I don't know, some of us maybe never thought we'd ever pray this. We, we thank you for your rules. We thank you for your directions because in them, we see your love. But in order to see it, we need to start with the relationship that you've won for us before we could do a thing. And so, Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the forgiveness we receive every day when we don't follow as perfectly as we should. Help us to find a renewed sense of joy in being lights in our communities, in our workplaces, in our schools, to follow you in thankfulness for what you've done. We pray this in Jesus' name, and also pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, 
and the glory forever and ever. Amen. At this time,